0: Work is no longer just about productivity and metrics. It's about people. And when we focus on positivity, communication, belonging, and development, the numbers take care of themselves. This is Work Human Radio, where we talk to authors, researchers, and business leaders about the latest trends making work more human around the world. Here's your host, Mike Wood.
1: Thank you for joining us for another Work Human Radio. We are rounding out our month-long coverage of Black History Month with a very special interview with Susan Rayburn of the Library of Congress. I was able to visit her last month and see the Rosa Parks exhibit, and she was just wonderful to talk to in terms of her knowledge of the subject and the connections she was able to make with Rosa and her her fight for equality and recognition and even the things that she did in terms of workplace rights. So enjoy this interview. It's a little bit on the long side, but there's a lot in there that is very valuable. And if you get the chance, go visit the Library of Congress and check out some of their exhibits because they're just fantastic. So enjoy this interview and I will see you next week at the next episode. So how do you even begin to start putting together something like this? Like what's the timetable.
0: What was the timetable? Well, we started more than a year ago, and I spent a lot of time going through the digitized photos because there are about 2,500 photos in the collection of Rosa Parks, many from her own family, private photographs, in addition to things like newspaper coverage and professional photos. Then I started reading because the library had digitized the collection, started reading all of her letters, started reading all of her musings. She didn't really keep a proper diary. What she did was she wrote on on every scrap of paper that was available. So it could be the back of a church bulletin. It could be an NAACP meeting agenda. She was writing on paper bags. She was writing on whatever she could get her hands onto. And so going through and reading all of that and starting to think about, all right, what is it that's important to her? What is it that she keeps going back to? There are certain themes that she keeps touching on in her writings. And one of the things that you find when you go through this exhibit or you read some of her material is she uses the motif and the idea of being on a topic tightrope, that living in a segregated society, you were always on a tightrope. You were always having to do mental and physical gymnastics to work around really difficult situations, and you never really knew if you might fall. And so that idea keeps popping up again and again in her papers, and you see it here in the exhibit as well. That's
1: great. I mean, so I'm looking behind me at kind of like the way she started out in her family. Can you kind of just tell us a little bit about her humble beginnings as well? Very very (laughs) humble
0: beginnings. Her grandmother, in fact, was born into slavery and was a young girl at the time of emancipation, then 1865. So she did hear about this in her family. She had a great-grandfather who was a Scotch-Irish indentured servant and a grandmother who was a slave and a great-grandmother who was a slave. And then you can see this is a nice but modest house. Here in Alabama, her family, they were all farm workers. Her father also was a carpenter. He left the family when she was two and a half and her younger brother was on the way. And so she did not grow up knowing her father. She worked after school, cleaning classrooms, helping an aunt who was a domestic. She was always working. She talks about the fact as a kid that she didn't have much time to play, that sometimes they would get together and play ball with some of the neighborhood kids, but for the most part, she had work to do. And she talks about family members working for 75 cents a day in the fields. Her mother was a school teacher in a rural schoolhouse, but also had household responsibilities and stuff. So it was a very humble and poor beginning for her, but it wasn't that different from a lot of the people that she knew in Pine Level, Alabama.
1: So where do you think the first kind of musings of her experience that kind of led her to finally say, this is enough? Like, I think you have some of the artifacts here. We do.
0: We have a couple of artifacts that show that really early on, she is seeing that there's a difference in the way white children and white families are treated compared with black families and black children. This is her notepad that she has where she's writing about early childhood experiences. And she talks about being a six-year-old. And this would be in 1919 with the Ku Klux Klan raging through the area. It's right after World War One has ended, and a lot of black soldiers have come back expecting respect for their service, expecting to get their rights. And there is a huge pushback nationwide, and the Ku Klux Klan is responding to this. So she writes about sitting up all night with her grandfather, who has a shotgun and who has boarded up the house. And if any Ku Klux Klanman comes in, he is going to open fire. And she remembers this. As a six-year-old, and hiding other family members in town in their house when this was going on. She also writes in another bit of memorabilia, a white boy gave her kind of the evil eye and was threatening to beat her up. And so what does she do? She picks up a brick And she says, you know, she just probably gives him the look, don't you even think about it. And he walks away and she tells her grandmother about this and her grandmother warns her, you know, you've got to be careful. You have to behave. You cannot mess around with some of these white folks. And so she's learning very early on that things are different between herself and her neighbors and that this is something that she's going to push against for the rest of her life. And she lives to be 92. So it's a long life of pushing Yeah, back. She only
1: died in 2005, 2005,
0: right. Yeah. right.
1: Mm-hmm. So how did she get started in terms of her activism?
0: So where she really became organized and working through organized methods for civil rights work and for Black rights is... Her husband, Raymond, who she meets in 1932, he is working to help with the defense of the Scottsboro boys who were falsely accused of raping two white women. And the boys, they were all teenagers, were arrested and eventually sentenced to death. And even the judges and the lawyers all knew that this was a farce, that this was not true. And yet the prosecution continued. And it was working with her husband and having secret meetings at their house and working with others who were trying to overturn the convictions of these men that she began to learn about organizing and a lot of the people who were involved in the Scottsboro case also turn out to be some of the people who lay the groundwork for the modern civil rights organization and so mm-hmm. she's right there involved in it right place right time right place right time horrible situation though but she begins working in the 1940s for ED Nixon and he is the president of Montgomery's local NAACP chapter. And so she learns quite a lot from him because he's also serving as the head of the local branch for the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. And so she is learning about labor issues there as a result. She's coming into contact with a lot of people who work in the unions as a result of this. And so she never backs away from it. Even during the Cold War, when she's accused of being a communist, there's a lot of red baiting going on. She never backs away from her associations with the unions. She speaks at their meetings. She is in touch with them by correspondence for the rest of her life. And it becomes one of the most important things. And We have a small collection on display, but we actually have a slew of pins representing different labor groups different union causes. And she would go to demonstrations. she'd go to sit-ins, she would go to rallies, all of the stuff that were out of the union movement. And so it's something that from the time she's a working adult, this is becoming part of her mission.
1: Yeah. So she knew right away as work is a kind of reflection of society we live in that there was even this division that that followed her to the workplace that things were not equal
0: right one of the things that absolutely amazes her is working at Maxwell Airfield and it was integrated. And that sort of blew her mind. But then at the end of the workday, she would get on a bus and it would be an integrated bus and she would sit and chat with some of her white colleagues. They would get to the edge of the base and then she would transfer onto the city bus. And now she's having to sit at the back of the bus and now they cannot sit together. And so as soon as she leaves the base and she's on city property there, boom, segregation has kicked in. And so... What's interesting about her time at the base is that she realizes that it is possible for blacks and whites to work together without the base exploding, and that this is possible. But the city of Montgomery will not tolerate this. And so it's going to be a few more years before she has her incident on the bus that launches the Montgomery bus boycott. But she's already become aware at this point that it is possible for people to work together. But there are also a lot of people who don't want that to happen.
1: Mm So let's talk a little bit about the bus boycott and how that kind of came together I was just reading through some of the exhibits, and I didn't realize that the same bus driver from the day before who had left her off the bus in the rain was the one to pick her up the next day. She'd
0: had a run-in with this driver, James Blake, about 10 or 12 years before, too, and she tried to stay off his buses. And one of the things that people have said was that she was planted to be on that bus that day to cause all of this. And she has said in her autobiography, no, that's not what happened, that if she had been paying more attention that day, she would have noticed that James Blake's bus had come by and she would not have gotten on it but she did and so she is sitting here you can see we've got this drawing that was used in some of the court cases you can see where she is sitting she's sort of in no man's land it was not for whites it was not for blacks it was where anybody could sit but once those seats began filling with whites then black passengers were required to move back and so she's not sitting in the wrong place it's not like she's violating that rule So it's December 1st, which is a Thursday night in 1955, and she's sitting actually originally on the aisle. And that whole row there, two on one side, two on the other, there are black passengers. They stop outside the Empire Theaters, the next stop, and a large group gets on, and one white guy is left standing. And so the bus driver orders everybody in that row to move. And eventually three of them get up and move. Mrs. Parks slides into the window seat and announces that, no, she's not leaving. And what had happened was she was not the first person to defy bus regulations. There was a woman, Claudette Colvin, who had been arrested earlier in the year in March. And there was a whole history, actually, of people resisting on buses throughout the South. But what made her case a little different was the timing was ready in that Joanne Robinson in Montgomery had been planning for years a bus boycott. So they had already worked out some of the logistics. They had figured out what needed to be done. And so by the time Rosa comes along, they've got a plan in place. Rosa is determined to be really the ideal person to take a case to court. She's this middle-aged, respectable woman.
1: Tiny too, right?
0: Tiny and does not look like very threatening at all. And so... Everyone agrees in Montgomery that working in civil rights that yes, this is the time to move. And so that following Monday, when she appears in court and is convicted of violating city law, the bus boycott begins, and black riders are nowhere to be found. And so you've got and empty, they made up a large part. A of huge the part. In yeah. fact, most of the ridership were black women who worked as domestics and who were getting rides across town. And so that was a huge punch in the stomach of the bus company to lose maybe 70% of their riders. And so there were often buses that were going by empty. And so the bus boycott begins the day that she is in court and is convicted. And it's going to last for 381 days. And it isn't the bus boycott itself that causes the city to eventually relent. In the meantime, Claudette Colvin and other women who had been arrested on these buses had a lawsuit that was working its way through the courts. And so in November of 1956, the Supreme Court upholds that no, you cannot segregate on these buses. And then in December, after Alabama has appealed many times, it's announced that the ruling will stand and Montgomery has no choice but to capitulate. So there were two things happening at the same time. There was the bus boycott inspired by Rosa Parks. And then there was the lawsuit that was working its way through the cases, through the courts at the time. The little pieces coming together. All came together. Yeah. Yeah. So here we have, this is very cool. For a month or so, Rosa Parks was working as a dispatcher for the carpool system that was developed. And she's using this little Hallmark booklet that was a calendar and a little notebook. And you can see she's listed all of these names of different drivers who are going to be riding, who's going to be driving, who's going to be picking up where. They set up their own system. They set up their system with pickup points all over the city. Wow. And you called ahead for a ride and people were donating the use of their own vehicles. They were raising money to buy vehicles. They had bought a fleet of about 20 station wagons. Some were donated. And they had, at one point, E.D. Nixon even says, you know, that they were far more organized than the regular bus system at that point. Yeah. so
1: That's great. So I wanted to focus a little bit on what she's done in terms of workers' rights in the workplace. And can you talk about her experiences a little bit at work and how she moved towards change there?
0: Okay, well, as someone who lost her job after her bus protest, she was just kind of let go. There was no more work for her to be given, and she was not treated well when she had reported to work the next day. This is always going to be one of the things that is on her mind, is she's always working not just for Black rights, but for fair treatment for everybody. And if it's voting, if it's at work, if it's anywhere. And when she eventually starts working in 1965 for the congressman, John Conyers, and she had campaigned for him and he credited her with ensuring his victory. That's where she really does get involved in workplace issues. She is hired as his receptionist and she does office work, but she's also a member of his social services committee. And she is all over town collecting information on what's going on so that he can assist his constituents. And they get a lot of complaints about things that are happening in the workplace. And one of them in particular that happens is the local IRS office is having problems and people are coming in and they're complaining about the director of the office who is very biased against his black employees. And so what does she do? She and the congressman march down to the office, walk in, start asking questions, tell them what it is they're investigating. And shortly thereafter, the director is removed. office. So this was something that they did. They would investigate cases where people were complaining about what was happening in their workplaces. And she was also involved in supporting labor strikes and being in Detroit in the heart of the automotive industry. There was a lot of union activity and a lot of strikes. And we have a picture over here showing her with the congressman. And they're on the picket line. And this is 1986. Here she is in her heavy coat in the fall of 1986. She doesn't age. No, she doesn't. And they're walking the picket lines because General Motors has been using subcontractors. And this is an issue that they do get it resolved. But yes, even up into her 80s, she's still out there and still actively participating in the civil rights movement, in the labor movement, in all kinds of activities.
1: So as we look towards like her later life, can you just walk me through kind of like the recognition that she seemed to get towards yeah, the, the
0: recognition really starts to come in the 1990s, and it coincides with a lot of major anniversaries mm-hmm. of certain marches, the March on Washington, the March on Montgomery, the bus boycott. And so that's when she finally does start to get a lot of recognition outside the Black community. The Black community, of course, has regarded her since the early 60s as the mother of the modern civil rights movement. But she starts showing up in school textbooks. And there are Rosa Parks Days. Michigan enacts a Rosa Parks Day around her birthday. She's given a lot of honorary degrees. She travels to Sweden and to Japan to accept honors over there. We have a collection of items here that people had awarded her. This is interesting. This was from a... (laughs) federal prison camp and they put together this beautiful plaque. They made it themselves, but she was always working on prisoner defense funds. That was another thing that even in retirement and later in her life, she is raising money for that sort of thing. But she eventually receives, these are two of the two big awards, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian award. And President Clinton awarded that in 1996. And then the Congressional Gold Medal. And what I think is so interesting about that is she's there in the Capitol building in the rotunda, about a thousand people are there. And sitting in the front row is Senator Strom Thurmond, who had in 1957, set a record for the longest filibuster on the floor by protesting the 1957 Civil Rights Act. And there he was sitting in the front row as she's receiving this medal from Congress, the Congressional that Medal. That must have been great. Oh, I would have loved to have seen it. <laughs> well,
1: he had, uh, he had mistresses, he had all sorts of stuff. He but, had, yeah,
0: and he had been an ardent segregationist. And here he was at this ceremony. But I think if you
1: look back, I mean, I'm trying to kind of pick in my own brain here. If you look back, even 30 years ago, there were still people that were still segregationists in, in Congress,
0: And were not shy about it. Yeah. And that, I suppose, is one of her legacies is that that has become something that we've all recognized that, no, this was a brutal, awful system and that we weren't ever going to go forward if we continued to live like this.
1: So you and I talked a little bit earlier on the way in about this struggle for equality. And that it started with Blacks and then it went to women. And then there was a great analogy
0: that you had. Well, there was a cartoon that we have here at the library that was... Of course, a cartoon. It was a cartoon. It was, <laughs> it was a wonderful political cartoon. It showed different groups working their way up the steps of the Supreme Court. And that you did, you had the civil rights pioneers, the racial civil rights pioneers. You had the women's movement. Then you had everything from the gay liberation movement to those with disabilities, all of them working their way up the steps of the Supreme Court And that those who had already achieved official recognition, either through laws or through court rulings, are looking at those still working their way up the stairs and saying, come on up. And it's a really wonderful notion that we have been able to make some progress. It's unfortunate that it's taken us so long Mm -hmm. and that it's been so painful and difficult, but that we are making some progress.
1: People empowered generally don't like to give up that
0: power. No, they don't.
1: <laughs> Nowadays, you have kind of the transgender revolution, and mm-hmm. you have another r- group of people that is looking for rights. And it's just, it's everybody that we can find just to be equal. Nobody's asking for special treatment.
0: No one is asking for special rights. They're simply asking for equal rights. And I don't know how intellectually you can argue with that. And I think what you see as you go through this exhibit is that that was the case with Rosa Parks, too. It was originally her concerns, of course, were racial inequality. But as she goes through life, she becomes exposed to, as most of us do, a lot of other things. And she's becoming aware that there's so much more work out there for her to do. And she does. That's one of the things that she even says. I don't even have much time for a private life. I have so much to do. (laughs) So. So
1: can you tell our listeners just how long this exhibit is up and where
0: they can go? So the exhibit opened on December 5th, 2019, on the anniversary of the bus boycott, and it's going to run through August of 2020 here at the Library of Congress in the Jefferson Building. And we hope that you will all come and spend some time here. If you can't, the entire exhibit is online on the library's website at loc.gov, and you can see all the exhibits that are on display. All of the labels and captions and text that are in this exhibit are also there. So if you're not able to make it to Washington, you can still enjoy the exhibit. And you can take a look at the Rosa Parks collection. You can read her letters. We've got her letters online. You can see her family photos. All of that is available to anyone with access to a computer.
1: Well, thank you so much for the time today. And this is a wonderful exhibit.
0: Well, thank you, Mike. I'm so glad that you came down and come back again. If you want to see business leaders, culture keepers, and industry experts come together to share the latest research and ideas for making work more human, you need to be at Work Human Live in 2020, May 11th through the 14th in San Antonio. Visit WorkHuman.com to see the full lineup of speakers and reserve your spot in the number one conference of 2020.